Are either one of these any good? Wow, this is a good movie. It's pretty good. Yeah, well, the director from yesterday doesn't think so. It stinks. You sorry? You waste all our film. <laughs> it's so bad. You know, I think in the time that that intro was playing, three more movies got released. <laughs> It's a busy, busy week. And by the way, um, I love that intro. And we got to say thanks to our friends at the Harrisonburg, Virginia Radio Group. They came up with that intro. Nice. And I uh, was happy to use it. Thank you, guys and girls. Welcome. She is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf. And this is the Screening Room Podcast. By the way, she is Hope Madden, who just had a birthday this week. Oh, so it's true. Happy birthday. Thank you. And this is the Screening Room Podcast. And it's brought to you by Marcus Crosswood Theaters. Now featuring the 70 feet wide ultra screen with Dolby Atmos surround sound and Dream Lounger recliners. Yeah, very, very busy this week, as Christmas week often is. And we'll start with four teenagers discovering an old video game console and are literally drawn into the game's jungle setting. Jumanji, welcome to the jungle. Why am I wearing half a shirt and short shorts in the jungle? I think we got sucked into Jumanji and we become the avatars we chose. So that means Bethany? Oh, Bethany, don't look at it. I'm an overweight, middle-aged man. Well, I don't have my claret in, and all I see around here is pollen. Well, I don't have a top two feet of my body. That was so intense. I, like, can't even with this place. You know, it's weird, but I kind of had high hopes for this one because, although I'm sure it's not rocket science, The Rock and Jack Black and Kevin Hart are just endlessly likable, enjoyable people to watch on screen. That's exactly right, and it comes through, and they're a main reason why it does. It picks up, the first Jumanji movie came out in 1995, and this one picks up with a little prologue in 1996, and that's just about the time that the Jumanji game got hip to the fact that kids were playing video games now. So in the interim, it decided to morph. It had to morph into a cartridge to get itself to be played. <laughs> and uh, fast forward to today, and you've got a little breakfast club setting. You've got some sort of ruckus, and uh, the kids, four kids, are sent to detention. But instead of a library this time, they're in an old storage room. But it's the same sort of deal. You've got four very identifiable types. Types. You've got a jock. You've got a nerd. You've got an outcast. You've got a beauty queen bee. So uh, they, they don't want to do their detention work, so they find this old video game cartridge, happens to be Jumanji, decide for a laugh to fire it up, and they have to pick four avatars, and when they start to play it, of course, they get sucked into the game, and they, are, they become the avatars that they chose. That's where a lot of the fun is, because, conveniently so, their avatars are the polar opposites of their real selves. Mm -hmm. So then you've got these adults, but actually they're, you know, they're kids in adult bodies trying to deal with these new selves that they have. The nerdy guy is now the huge muscular rock, <laughs> where the muscular athletic guy is now the diminutive Kevin Hart, and he's just the sidekick. Whereas the beauty queen is Jack Black. <laughs> <laughs> and the outcast as is the hot Laura Croft kind of character, butt-kicking character uh, played by Karen Gillan. So that's where the fun of this movie is. The four of them, like you said, they're very likable, and they bring a lot of fun to the really character-based humor. Yes, the characters are sort of rooted in very familiar cliches kind of types, but they keep it very character-based with the comedy, and the cast does a lot with it. And it ends up being a good bit of fun. I mean, the overall adventure is pretty standard, and of course the kids have to learn something today, <laughs> and the music has to start getting tender as they do that. So, you know, we've we've seen all that before. Some of the... CGI. There are some effective set pieces. Uh, some of the CGI is a little bit shaky. And then you've got Bobby Cannavale 
who's so talented. He is so talented. But here he is again as an over-the-top villain and just another one of these cartoonish characters that he seems to be playing way too often. Like in Spy. His, yeah. his version of the villain in Spy, I thought, was really That's too the, big. Yeah, that, that really seems to be where he's popping up. He did the same... Uh, that awful Annie remake. Yeah, just he too played, broad. Yeah, too broad. But anyway, he's a very talented guy, but was, I was kind of disappointed to see him in another one of these roles. But in the end, it's it's a nice family film for the holidays. It certainly isn't great, but I was with you in having some high hopes for this movie, and it came out as, as decent. Solidly funny in uh, a number of occasions, and just the fun of watching these performers interact with each other is enough to make it, yeah, give it a shot. Hmm. Next up is a film inspired by the imagination of P.T. Barnum. It's an original musical that celebrates the birth of show business and tells of a visionary who rose from nothing to create a spectacle that became a worldwide sensation. The Greatest Showman. P.T. Barnum, at your service. I'm putting together a show. And I need a star. Every one of us is special. And nobody is like any one of us. That's the point of my show. Ready? Showtime. No one ever made a difference by being like everyone else. So this is your musical for Holiday Week, and it stars a very charismatic song and dance man in Hugh Jackman. That's right, and and a much more upbeat than uh, Les Mis the last time we saw him on a big screen singing. I was intrigued by that. But that was great. Don't go dissing Les Mis. Oh, no, no. I'm not. I know better with you in the room. Um, But I I was intrigued by this because, you know, the trailers really made it out to be sort of so earnest and upbeat and wholesome. And I don't recall that being the impression P.T. Barnum left on the world. Well, especially with the era that he came up in. Mm Mm-hmm. And, you know, and it's funny, he was actually a fascinating man. He was a politician. He was, he spoke on temperance. He he did all kinds of things besides the Barnum and Bailey Circus. Um, but the, they really, really rewrite history with this one. And mm-hmm. they, they oversimplify him to uh, an extent that it's almost unseemly because the, the one thing that they really do that's true to the man is a lot of sleight of hand they convince you that you are seeing something that's probably better than what you're actually seeing. So they have some really great, really brightly choreographed musical numbers, you know, trapezes and elephants and dancing. And he's joined by Zac Efron in a lot of the singing. And of course, he's a song and dance man himself, you know, and there's it's a gorgeous film to look at. Mm -hmm. Very upbeat. It's just that sort of the core story is really about this main character who. He's got big dreams. And then once he kind of achieves those dreams, then he realizes he just doesn't have the respect of, like, the highfalutin crowd. And so he kind of steps away from the this family, uh, which is basically the, the sideshow curiosities that he's making his living off of. And so it begins by making it seem like he's convinced these people to come out of the shadows, to get up on the stage and become a family and just be who they are and be proud of that. I'm not sure that's really what P.T. Barnum did. but then, <laughs> There was some exploiting going on. Uh, yeah, mm. uh, but then he's being, it's, you know, there's a lot of, of backlash of people who feel like he's exploiting these people. So then he learns a lesson and he comes back to these friends and family that he's made in the first place. So the point is, <laughs> they really tread lightly on this idea that he's probably exploiting these people to not necessarily their own benefit, right. but to his. 
But then the movie is is no, it's empowering. Let's be empowered. So in as entertaining as it is, and it is an entertaining movie, there just to me is something unseemly about this empowerment theme that it has. Kind of an undercurrent of, yeah, you're really sanitizing this story. To a huge, enormous degree. Yeah, it was directed by Michael Gracie. And, and interestingly, it was co-written by Bill Condon, right. who directed Dreamgirls, and he wrote uh, Chicago. Mm-hmm. So the man knows some musicals. Yeah. So was involved just as a writer, but you don't really see maybe enough of an influence. Maybe he should have taken some more reins, I guess. I don't know, because it, it's, I mean, it's very definitely the sanitizing of the story that is problematic. It's not the musical numbers. It's not the spectacle. They have that right. Uh, it's just that I, I just, it's hard to feel comfortable with a movie that has such an upbeat, positive, heart-wrenching theme w- without really looking at, no, maybe maybe it was exploitative and manipulative and, and not that healthy. Yeah, so in similar ways to what we were saying about uh, Jumanji 2 there, it's got very charismatic performers Absolutely. in the lead uh, and, and entertaining to look at, but there's some something going on in the background that doesn't, make it completely successful. Exactly. And also, and we were just talking about Michelle Williams the other day and how she's just magnificent in everything. And it's funny. Well, we're going to talk about her more coming up here. But yeah, you're right. But she has trouble with this one. She's saddled with that cliche, bottomlessly supportive spouse character. And she really wrestles to try to make that character seem authentic. Well, that's tough because you see that underwritten role so many times. Uh, but yeah, that, that's interesting because uh, she is usually so, so great, and we definitely will get to her a little bit later. But next up, we're going to stay with a music-based movie following their win at the World Championship. The now-separated Bellas reunite for one last singing competition at an overseas USO tour, but face a group who uses both instruments and voices. Pitch Perfect 3. I would do anything to sing with you guys again. Anything. You guys, every year the USO puts on this performance to support the troops in Europe. What if I could get us an invite? Yeah, I've suddenly got a bunch of free time, so... Hell yeah! (laughs) Here we go, here we go. It's my turn to make history. They really do need to join the workforce. Yes. So is this officially the most needless sequel of 2017? Yeah, it's been two years since Pitch Perfect 2, and I guess it did well enough to get uh, to get a sequel. I remember being pleasantly, I guess, surprised by the first one. I didn't expect much. Then it started out, like the opening 20 minutes of the first one, I thought, oh, if this is the kind of humor we're doing, I'm on board. And then it kind of backed off it. But still, I thought the first one was okay. And this one is just, it's just got a downward, downward spiral. Yeah, they bring back almost the entire cast and you know and they come up with some pretty convoluted excuses to have them all there but one of the things and then that's all part and parcel of the one thing that I think the film does well which is these self-referential barbs you know they make fun of themselves a lot and in very insightful and fun ways I think and you know and if you like acapella singing mm-hmm. then there's still a great deal of that although to me that has worn wildly thin <laughs> by this point and also I think that the band that they compete against they compete against actually a hip-hop band a country band and then another all-girl group it's a rock band that plays instruments and writes their own songs but what I don't like is how catty the two groups of fe- I hated that. They, well, not just catty, but instantly catty. In, um, instantly. Yeah. That just rubbed me the wrong way. But more than anything, there's there's very little storyline here. There's a side plot that's 
bizarre and sort of fun in that it is so over the top and bizarre and couldn't possibly happen. And of course, that involves Fat Amy, Rebel Wilson. Sassy. She's sassy. She is sassy. And she gets to say a lot of, of you know, offensive things, which is always fun. <laughs> I mean, there are a couple of chuckles to be had. It's just that it's so meandering and pointless that it's it's just hard to even remember that you saw it and when one, it's over. One of the things I especially liked about the first one and a little bit in the second one was the announcers, uh, John Michael Higgins and Elizabeth Banks. They had some great lines in the first couple of movies. And that's, you know, it's that's one of the funny weird artificial storylines how they managed to keep those two a part of this even though what they are are announcers at university acapella competition so why are they still here if we're at the USO well they give you a reason it's a dumb reason but it's fun and the two of them are are funny they have a great on-screen chemistry they've already established very interesting characters and I'm happy to say that they do make it to to this one as well well pointless and needless I guess for a pitch perfect three but moving on, the latest from filmmaker Alexander Payne. He's back getting political with a social satire in which a guy realizes he would have a better life if he were to shrink himself. It's downsizing. That's Dave, Dave Johnson. Hey, everybody. And Carol. He never struck me as the kind of guy who'd go get small. Downsizing takes the pressure right off. Plus, you're really making a difference. You mean all that crap about saving the planet? Yeah. Downsizing is about saving yourself. We live like kings. Got best houses, best restaurants, Cheesecake Factory. Got three of them. Same as it ever was. Sometimes you think we're in the normal world. And then something happens. Oh my God. And you realize we're not. So Alexander Payne hasn't really been political since election right. in 1999. A, a great filmmaker. He's done Sideways. He did Nebraska, even mm. though he did not write that mm-hmm, one. He mm-hmm. writes most of his stuff. Mm-hmm. Or co- the Descendants. Co- another great Descendants one. about Schmidt. Uh, he usually co-writes with uh, his frequent collaborator, Jim Taylor, who's also the co-writer here. And they're back in the political arena with, yeah, it's a very cutting social satire of greed and blatant self-interest. Now, word is, he's had this idea floating around for years, but I guess waiting for the perfect time when this would be relevant. So, (laughs) surprise, surprise! (laughs) It comes out in uh, 2017. But, yeah, it centers around a a not-too-very-distant future when science has figured out a great way to improve global sustainability, and that is to shrink everybody and everything into, it's like, 2,744 to 1 ratio, something like that. that. So you get these tiny little communities, and that way there's so much less waste. And after a hilariously obnoxious infomercial about Leisure Land, the new community starring Neil Patrick Harris and Laura Dern. Oh, it's priceless. (laughs) It's so perfect. After that, our main couple, Paul and Audrey Safranic, and that's Matt Damon and Kristen Wiig, their soul, they decide this way, you know, their money's going to go a lot farther. They can live the good life. Well, it isn't long before human potential meets up with human nature and things that you would expect to happen, happen. You've got the same social caste system develop. And finally, their neighbor, a very smarmy Jason Sudeikis, just admits that this isn't about saving the planet. It's about saving yourself. The issue is not changing your environment so you can go about the same old greedy wasteful ways it's about changing yourself but these people are looking for an easy out and so that's and a lot of times the the satire the slings and arrows of the satire really find their marks they do especially when paul starts hanging out a little bit with his neighbors crazy neighbor played by christoph waltz and then christoph's vietnamese cleaning lady 
an award-worthy Hong Chow. Now, she's already been nominated for a SAG, for a Golden Globe. I would look out for her to get nominated for an Oscar. I she's, definitely would, she too. She steals this film. Yeah, she was just had a, a smaller part as one of the friends in uh, Big Little Lies that mm, we mm. that we uh, watched. But, she, yeah, she is fantastic. She better be. And, well, I think I think you're right. I think she's almost a shoe-in to get some award consideration because she steals this film. Yes, yeah, she does. And, and leads... Paul and leads the group on a further exploration of realizing what's going on here. And for most of the time, I think for us it works, but then it has a couple of slip-ups. So Alexander Payne, he does a great job with political cutting satire. He's great with it. In this film, he brings in the absurd and he has difficulty keeping that tone. It's it's a tough thing to weave into a film. Either you're full-blown absurd or you're not. We saw it done masterfully earlier this year in The Square. Yes. This film has a tougher time managing that. And then also sort of the, the lessons learned, it becomes the opening of a white man's eyes. You know what I mean? It just feels a little... Trite. Yeah, those were the those were the slip ups for me where you tried to balance the tone of satire and absurd. And also there there were just some moments of an underlying current of pretension mm-hmm. where this it's this man, this white man, you know, opening up his his uh, opening up his eyes and, and realizing the importance of things is treated maybe a little too heroically. Mm. But still, I don't think it derails it completely. No, and I absolutely think not. we would both still recommend downsizing this week. And speaking of award contenders, I think we'll have one in this next film. During the early days of World War II, the fate of Western Europe hangs on the newly appointed British Prime Minister Winston Churchill, who must decide whether to negotiate with Hitler or fight on against incredible odds. It's darkest hour. Winston lacks judgment. He's a bully. We may have to replace him. I speak to you for the first time as Prime Minister in a solemn hour for the life of our country. You ask, what is our policy? I say it is to wage war by sea, land, and air with all our might. We shall never surrender! This one to me feels like a bookend to Dunkirk, which was my favorite movie of this year. Boy, it really does. It's a perfect bookend because it deals so much with that same event while it really looks at, uh, uh, becomes a character study of Winston Churchill, played incredibly by Gary Oldman. And, you know, it's funny. Back in the day, you know, when he was in the late 80s and into the 90s, Gary Oldman was one of those actors who absolutely disappeared into roles, and in particular into the roles of real-life characters like Sid Vicious. And he does it again here. He absolutely ceases to be Gary Oldman, and he's aided immeasurably by what has to be the greatest fat suit in movie history. It's really good. He looks great. He looks the part, but he he comes through in just crafting this incredible character right right from the get-go. Yeah. I mean, it's just hit the ground running. He's got the little idiosyncrasies. And, of course, Winston Churchill is an iconic figure in history, so you feel you, you come to the screen knowing a little bit about the mm-hmm. subject, but he right away, boom, you're in. So much nuance, you know, so many different ways to to look at Churchill, which I think is important because he was a polarizing figure and he was somebody who who had such a command of the language and could could just rally people around him. And at the same time, he was a drunk and and he was he was very passionate and and he got confused. And so it was also easy to see why people would be like this guy. Yeah, I don't think we can follow this guy. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, definitely. He didn't 
have a lot of support mm-hmm. uh, in certain areas of his government, or let's be honest, with King George, right. who's played by Ben Mendelsohn, who who's we love. always love Ben Mendelsohn. He's playing King George this time, and and their relationship is very interesting, too, because they're both great actors. They and this, are. The scenes that they share together are very, very interesting. And you're right, it's also a good history lesson, another side to looking at that Dunkirk incident, mm-hmm. that incredible rescue. So especially if you've seen Dunkirk, uh, this would be a must. But even if you haven't, I think this one is definitely one to see because Gary Oldman is almost certain to get award nominations. Yes, agreed. So we both recommend Darkest Hour. And the next one to look at actually is not opening on, until Christmas Day. Usually there's one big movie that opens on Christmas mm-hmm. Day, at least one. And this is the one, another historical drama. It's the story of the kidnapping of 16-year-old John Paul Getty III, and the desperate attempt by his devoted mother to convince his billionaire grandfather, Jay Paul Getty, to pay the ransom all the money in the world. My child is a prisoner. $17 million. Oh, they will take his eye, his ear, the hand, and don't tell me you don't have the money. My former father-in-law only buys the best. It's time for you to do whatever it is he pays you to do. I hope you're half as good as everything else he's bought. We need to pay the ransom, Mr. Getty. I do not have the money to spare. No one has ever been richer than you are at this moment. What would it take for you to feel secure? More. More. I think probably the reason most people might be familiar or aware of this movie is because this is a film where they, they had filmed it in its entirety and completed it with Kevin Spacey and then digitally removed Kevin Spacey. It's amazing. They got Christopher Plummer to take over the role of J. Paul Getty. And not only, you think about it, not only was it really the only move they could make, I mean, when all that came out with Kevin Spacey, that's going to sink your movie. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So what can you do? You can either postpone it, or Ridley Scott got everybody back together. They filmed Christopher Plummer in the role, and I'll tell you what, it is seamless. It is seamless. It's What an incredible rush job. So yes, you're right. That's why, for a lot of people, this movie is going to be top of mind. But I'll tell you what. It is effective. It's an effective, effective movie, whether you remember this or not. And I remember a little bit about it. It was 1973. J. Paul Getty's grandson, Paul, was 16 years old and was kidnapped. And this movie, directed by, as I said, Ridley Scott, becomes not only a character study about the larger-than-life figure, J. Paul Getty, and how he lived, but also then it becomes a look at what we value as humans mm-hmm. uh, from one person to the next. What is valued? What is family? And how the different people perceive different things. And just a look at a very weird and ever-fascinating character in J. Paul Getty and how he lived, how he amassed his fortune, how he then became a, a tightwad and hung on to his money. He even had a, a payphone installed in his mansion, so any guests would have to pay for their own calls. <laughs> Things like that. And of course, since this is not a documentary, certain liberties are taken. But it sticks close to the the basic story where Gail Getty, who by the time this happened, was not married to uh, J. Paul Getty's son anymore. So she really didn't benefit from any of the millions and billions of dollars. But the kidnappers, of course, thought that she would. So she had to try to get J. Paul Getty to pony up the money, which he wasn't going to do. And then this character of an ex-CIA agent who's on J. Paul Getty's payroll, comes into play. And that's uh, played by Mark Wahlberg, where he is tasked with going to try to track down the kidnappers in Italy and try to free him without paying any ransom at all. So you've got that side going on. You've got the look at J. Paul Getty as a character. And then you've got the the struggle 
by Gail to try to keep it all together. And we talked about Michelle Williams earlier, and she is just flat-out fantastic in this movie. She's so, so good. It reminded me while I was watching it of just how good she almost always is. Mm-hmm. And she's, she's great because you instantly feel the struggle that she has within herself, her, the disdain that she's come to have for her father-in-law, ex-father-in-law, and how he lives and how he is, but yet the desperation to do anything to free her child, which is natural. Absolutely. And believe me, she has to make some tough choices, but her swing of emotions come through loud and clear. I think she is fantastic. I also think the movie is written incredibly well, written by a guy named David Scarpa, who really doesn't have a, a glittering resume. He wrote The Day the Earth Stood Still. He also wrote The Last Castle years ago, back in 2001. So not the original Day the Earth Stood Still, but the right. Keanu Reeves right. remake. Exactly, exactly. But boy, I think this movie is very, very well written. It has several memorable lines that really bite while they don't feel like speechifying. Mm-hmm. And that can be a, a tough trick Absolutely. sometimes. So I think it's really well written, well acted, and one of Ridley Scott's better directing jobs. I'm not on board all the time with Ridley Scott, as some people are. Mm-hmm. He certainly does have his have his successes. He does. And this is one of them. I think this is directed very, very well. And uh, really impressed me, All the Money in the World, which comes out on Christmas Day. We've also got some big movies coming out this week for home entertainment. So let's run those down. Yeah, number one coming out is what you have already said is our number one movie of the year, Dunkirk, out on DVD this week. It is so good. I I will be honest. It's going to lose something on the small screen. Oh, yeah. It is. But if that's the only way you can see it, it is worth seeing. However, I think it will get a boatload of Oscar nominations and then will probably be released again. Wouldn't surprise me. No, it so, wouldn't. And you know what? It was filmed in 70 millimeters, so yeah. keep an eye out because if it gets a re-release and you have a 70 millimeter screen anywhere near you, just keep an eye out to see if you can watch it that way because it is just gorgeous. Please do. And that's Dunkirk. And also out this week, probably, well, maybe until The Last Jedi came out, uh, the most polarizing movie of the year. Talk about love it or despise it. Mother is out this week. We loved it. We did love it. You know, and it's it's a bold vision, and it is a hot mess all at the same time. I Ooh. mean, it, I'm not saying it works. I'm just saying, you know, hats off to mm-hmm. Aronofsky for making it. If you're a fan of his work, you're going to see all of his work in this movie, like all smashed together in a big oh. stew. The performances are amazing. It is definitely a, I'm sorry, is that happening right now? Kind of a movie. <laughs> Jennifer Lawrence, <laughs> Javier Bardem, Ed Harris. We we think Michelle Pfeiffer's part of this movie deserves award consideration. Yes, absolutely. Your hot mess is a good way to describe it. So many different metaphorical themes going on here. Just pick one. Pick one, dive into it, and you'll probably hit some pay dirt sooner or later. Very, very polarizing. So if you haven't seen it, you know what? Take a shot and see what you think, and that's Mother. Also out this week, Stronger, Jake Gyllenhaal, in a true story, Jake Gyllenhaal is got a lot of great notices at the time when this came out. And uh, at the time, I think people thought he could be an award consideration. Now, I think that's kind of uh, fallen by the wayside a little but bit. But he's such a good actor. And, you know, and I, he's just one of those guys. He makes some good movies. He makes some bad movies. But if he's in it, it's probably worth checking out. So, uh, you know, and this is going to be one of those real heartwarming, heroic tales that is is no doubt worth the time. Yeah, it's the true, true life story of Jeff Bauman, who captured kind of the hearts of the city and the world. He became a symbol of hope after surviving the 2013 Boston Marathon bombing. So you've got the injury, and you've got the rehab, and, of course, Jake Gyllenhaal plays him. So uh, worth checking out, uh, for at least for that alone, because you're right. Jake Gyllenhaal is usually very, very good. Also out this week, the Lego Ninjago movie. After a couple of big successes with the Lego movie and Lego Batman, this one... Derails a little bit. A little bit. Yeah, it does. It's a little flat. 
took a little bit of a step back. But you know what? If the kids need something to watch over the holidays, they can enjoy watching some animated Legos. And one, another one that comes out this week, one that a lot of people may have missed, but boy, if you see it, you will not forget it. It is Vince Vaughn, like you've really never seen Vince Vaughn before in a movie called Brawl in Cell Block 99. Loved it. Holy moly. Vince Vaughn always, he's a big guy. He's a very tall guy. Mm -hmm. He uses his physical presence like you have never seen before Mm -hmm. in the story of a guy who basically starts a brawl in prison for a very specific reason. He kind of has to. And holy moly, it gets violent. Oh, it's incredibly violent, but I've never seen Vince Vaughn better. And it's not just him. The entire cast is great. It's a very, very clever film. It's bloody. It's a bloody mess, but... Oh, man, it is it is really, really worth looking into. And it's a follow-up from the same filmmaker who did Bone Tomahawk, which we loved. Loved. Uh, so, yeah, he's the same writer-director as Craig Zoller. Yeah, if you are if you're, don't have a, a weak stomach, please check out Brawl and Cell Block 99 out on VOD this week. So much going on. So chime in. What do you think about any of these movies uh, out new in theaters or on home video this week? Uh, let us know. Keep the conversation going. Easiest way to do that is on Twitter. And we are at Mad Wolf, M-A-D-D-W-O-L-F. Also, Mad Wolf Columbus is where you can find us on Facebook and on Instagram. And the main website with all the written reviews and going to be our top films of 2017 list. Going to be posting here very, very soon. That is at MadWolf.com. So we definitely want to wish you the happiest of holidays. Merry Christmas and hope you enjoy some films this holiday season. The Screening Room Podcast is a presentation of the Columbus Radio Group. And sponsored by Marcus Crosswoods Theater. Until next time, I'm George Wolf. I'm Hope Madden. And this is the Screening Room Podcast. See ya. I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. Bye.